the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We can help your company and your employees look forward to tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. Don't forget that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes and it's also available on our website irishtimes.com forward slash podcasts. In the first half of this week's show, I'll be looking at the wild swings in global stock markets this week. Is it a correction or something more worrying? You'll hear from economist Chris Johns, Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times and Fergal O'Brien, Director of Policy with Employers Group IBEC. In the second half of the programme, Chris, Cliff and Fergal debate the latest economic forecast for Ireland and the merits of the government's $115 billion national investment plan. Now, Chris Johns, uh, thank you for joining us uh, by phone from London. Let's talk about the markets. It's been an extraordinary week. Uh, they were down, they were up, they were down, and now they're up again today. What's going on? It all started with those dreadful things called bonds. Um, we remember them from our own financial crisis when we were all trying to burn bondholders. This time it's government bonds, and, and their prices fell, which is the same thing as saying bond yields have gone up because of the merest hint, just a smidge of a hint of inflation in the U.S. labor market. It actually wasn't much of a hint, but um, it was enough to get the equity markets worried. Because traditionally, equities and bonds, one goes up, the other goes Mm. down. Um, And um, people are worried at the end of the day that if it is inflation coming back, that means the era of low interest rates, easy money is over. And a lot of people think that stock markets have been propelled higher, at least by that easy money. Other factors have been involved as well. But if easy money is coming to an end, interest rates are going to go up everywhere, even perhaps in Europe, then stocks go down. It was exaggerated by the fact that markets these days are controlled by machines, not people. Yeah, you had a column in the Irish Times uh, this morning, Chris, actually making this point that robots um, had a large part to play in this. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the reasons why TV news doesn't cut to crowded trading floors with hundreds of young men, usually men, sometimes occasionally women, in brightly coloured jackets shouting and screaming at each other, which would have been the case in the past, is that those trading floors, by and large, don't exist anymore. If If the cameras want to cut to who's actually doing the trading, they'd have to cut to a big air-cooled data centre somewhere in the middle of nowhere, um, just ranks of computer servers talking to each other. It's it's an empirical fact that the bulk of trading on the world stock markets is now done computer to computer. Human intervention is quite minimal. And you overlay the fact that um, all sorts of trading, I call it trading, could be called betting or gambling, it's certainly not investing. All sorts of trading strategies are based on all kinds of weird and wonderful algorithms these days that tend to exaggerate herding behavior. Um, so that one one machine starts to sell, another machine takes notice and joins in in the fun, and then it can be based on all kinds of weird things like volatility. So stocks are going up and down by a lot. There's an awful awful lot of money is managed on the basis that when volatility goes up, you sell. So that adds to the pressure. And there's an awful lot of algorithms out there written by very smart PhDs in physics that we know absolutely nothing about, and we don't know why they do what they do. All we know is that they're doing it, and. Um, the suspicion I have is that we don't really know what's going on anymore. To the extent that we ever did know anything about stock markets, when it was person to person on the floor of an exchange, 
Um, it's just a black box now. Cliff, very interesting what Chris was saying there. And um, we really don't have a clue what's going on now. And this is very worrying, uh, particularly when you consider that, uh, you know, economies uh, sort of function around this kind of stuff and everybody's pension is invested in equities. Mm. I mean, they say, uh, they say every day is a school day. And certainly I've learned something in the last few days about the kind of things that people are betting on, as Chris was talking about there. I mean, one of the really notable things in the markets last year was how calm they were, how little volatility there there has been in the markets historically at at a really low level. And one of the things, just one of the factors that has played into things over the last while is that some investors have been betting effectively on volatility remaining absent from the markets and have got kind of caught on the wrong side of that bet in the last few days. Uh, but 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 Chris is right, and I, and I, I suppose if you stand back from it, then and look at the kind of the fundamental issue. You know, as he said, there is a fear that the era, the end of the era of easy money, the end of the era of low interest rates, is going to leave some companies exposed, highly leveraged companies, uh, and going to withdraw a lot of money from equities and send it into safe havens like bonds. Because you know, if long term interest rates go up at three, three and a half, four percent. That's an attractive place to put your money compared to equity. So, so the whole equation changes for investors. So some people are taking that view. The more optimistic view, the more relaxed view in the market is, look, the market has gone up you know, very healthily over the last 18 months since Donald Trump's election. Uh, it was due a correction that the underlying mm. fundamentals are still, are still reasonably strong. So we're seeing those th- two things, I think, pulling off each other now uh, and, and that's you know, I think one we of the record, reasons why we have such volatility in the last few days. Yeah, I think last year we had record highs on the American markets uh, in more for a more, more than 80 days yeah. which in itself was uh, a record and Donald Trump was kind of yeah, I well, think he was claiming some credit uh, for it's, that. It's a dangerous strategy for a politician to claim credit mm. for the markets because you know you live you live by it, you die by it, and he hasn't been saying much over the last few days. His people have been out saying, "Look, the fundamentals are still okay," and I guess that is one of the, one of the kind of contradictions looking in is that is that growth has been so strong and that will support corporate profits, but obviously. Investors are looking a year, 18 months down the line. They're seeing higher interest rates. They're wondering, what's that going to mean for growth? And uh, having ignored this risk, you know, which has been in the background for for, for months now, they're suddenly uh, they're suddenly starting to fret about it. It sometimes seems to happen in the markets when. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when momentum shifts, sentiment shifts. Fergal, in terms of the Irish economic recovery, should we be worried about this? Because we've been going gangbusters the last uh, few years. We'll be talking later about European Commission es- estimates of how much the Irish economy grew last year. Extraordinary growth, really, we've had. Um, so does this potentially, could this potentially derail the Irish story? Uh, Kieran, I don't think we'll see any read-through to the Irish domestic economy. Um, you know, I suppose if you look at the exuberance we've seen in the markets over the last while, it's no surprise some people started to get afraid. Uh, I, I do think there are ultimately two factors here. One was the, the correction factor that was that, that I think was about to happen at some stage, um, given the, the spectacular surge we've seen in equities over the last couple of years. Um, but the other issue is that we're now moving to a new phase. So clearly, you know, the, the global economy ultimately was getting too hot. It was no longer economy in recovery, but it still had emergency monetary policy. So we're now moving to a new phase where we're not going to have emergency monetary policy and the markets have got to adjust to that. 
Mm. So we're moving back to a more normal type relationship between equity and bonds. Um, Having said that, the growth forecasts for the global economy are very strong. I mean, the IMF uh, recently, just before Davos, uh, put out some very strong figures. And if anything, maybe they they, they tipped this over. And again, go back to what started all this last week, was a very strong um, employment report uh, in the US, both on the job numbers and and then the hint of a bit of wage growth coming through. Um, So the global economy was potentially too hot. Um, for, for, for the for the environment th- that we had, and I think that's definitely contributed to the correction. So, is there is there much of a risk of a read through to the Irish macro fundamentals? I would say very small. Um, the reality is that you know when when you look at the U.S. economy, uh, where, where where most of the the issues have started here, um, we still have to see the full impact of these tax cuts coming through. Uh, wage growth is going to cause a few headaches um, for, for 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 the central bank for the Fed, um, but ultimately you know corporate earnings are going to be strong on the back of the benefits of tax cut and tax reform that we're still going to feel. The U.S. is going to see a sugar rush over the next couple of years. And ultimately, corporates are going to remain fairly ebullient. Uh, Chris Johns, we had a new uh, head of the Federal Reserve sworn in this week, Jerome Powell, taking over from Janet Yellen. Do you expect any change in policy or direction uh, from Jerome Powell? Broadly, no. Um, It was quite a baptism for him, wasn't it? Mm. Um, The Fed are going to raise rates again two or three times this year. They've been signaling that. Um, I don't think this changes very much. Um, it's important to stress that that uptick in wage inflation last week was very small. Um, it, w- it wasn't a big deal in and of itself. The links between wage inflation in the States and actual inflation, which is what the Fed is paid to take care of, are actually quite weak. If the U.S. economy is growing strongly, it can support higher wage growth without there being inflation. There's plenty of historical precedent for that. So I don't think there's been any news to to shift the Fed from its uh, pre-announced path. But that pre-announced path is for another two or three um, hikes in interest rates this year. They are coming. Um, And if this inflation gets worse, that'll become three or four hikes rather than two or three. But we're not there yet. And do you buy this line that's coming out from a lot of uh, market uh, people or people embedded in the market, shall we say, that it's uh, simply a correction because obviously we had this massive run-up uh, in the value of equities uh, over the past 18 months? Yeah, the, the, the valuations, which is at the end of the day what should matter in equity markets, they often don't. But what what they've been telling us is is that things have gotten very overextended. Yes, the world economy is on a tear, profits are on a tear, but um, even given that, um, the profits growth that's likely to come through, frankly, didn't support what equities have done. So, uh, you know, a lot of us have been expecting a pullback for some time. You know, it's in the nature of these things that, you know, I, for example, have been expecting it for ages, so, and it kept on not coming. Mm. So so on, on the fundamentals, to the extent that they matter in the short term for stock markets, which often isn't very much, um, this is not a surprise. Uh, Cliff, what about uh, pensions here? There might be some people close to retirement who are fretting about this. Uh, should they be worried? Uh, not if their fund has been properly managed. I mean, obviously, 
people's pension funds have done pretty well over the last uh, over the last year or so due to rising interest rate, due, due to rising equity prices, and in fact, uh, rising interest rates will have helped uh, some pension funds as well on the on the liability side of their uh, of, of their books. Normally, you know what should happen as people approach retirement is that their pension fund should be moved out of riskier assets into safer assets, like equities, for example. Exactly, like equities. So. You know, in the last few years before retirement, you shouldn't be exposed to uh, you shouldn't be exposed to you know market. Mm. But a lot of that money might have gone into bonds, and the returns on bonds haven't been great. Have they it? haven't, no, but uh, they haven't indeed. And uh, bond prices have taken a bit of, a bit of a hit in the last while, and a lot of money's in cash. I mean, it's been a very difficult few years for for Not any, a lot of money for, in cash either. No, there's been it's been a very difficult few years for anybody uh, in the investment industry over the last few years uh, in terms of in terms of looking for safe returns, and they've been pushed into looking for riskier investments like equities and that's one of the reasons why why markets have run up so much but in terms of someone about to retire they should be in safer assets pretty much at the moment uh, you know they shouldn't be they shouldn't be mm-hmm. unduly exposed and I, peop- I guess people with small self-administered funds n- you know need to be looking at this need to be talking to you know getting expert advice on how they should position themselves with, you know if they're going to retire in the next three four or five years Chris would you from an Irish economic point of view would you be more concerned about Brexit than the current market volatility uh, particularly when we you know during the week uh, the Theresa May seems to have made it perfectly clear that Britain is not going to be part of a customs union Yeah um I'd be concerned about a couple of things actually on both sides of the Atlantic um because uh, it was just mentioned there about Trump's tax cuts um the US unemployment is more or less non-existent at the moment the economy is fully employed and this is not the time to be showering hundreds of billions, possibly trillions of dollars in tax cuts on an economy that's starting to show a few signs of inflation. Um, you, you should simply not be doing that. It's, it's, it's irresponsible. And the way in which the tax cuts were um, directed towards the rich and not the poor, all of the issues over inequality and um, the way in which America is a divided society are not going to be helped. They're going to be made worse by this. Um, and then you've got Brexit on the other side. Um, I, I think that, um, to coin a phrase, I think we're caught between a kleptocracy in the US and an idiocracy in the United Kingdom. All right. Tell us what you really feel, Chris. Um, Fergal, just on the Brexit point and the customs union, the fact that it doesn't look as if Britain are now going to be part of a customs union arrangement uh, with the European Union, how big a threat is that for the Irish economy? Um, so I was looking at the debate in the UK our assessment would be that unfortunately nothing is perfectly clear yet. Um, I think there's a still a lot of uh, political just debate to happen before, before, be we, before we get a final think? position. I, I still think we could see um, the UK remain in a customs union, if not the customs union. Uh, there is very strong momentum uh, coming through from business that in the UK hadn't been you know, quite as strong maybe as we would have seen business in Ireland on the need for, for, for a customs union. They have come out uh, recently um, building good momentum, good coalition in terms of support for remaining in the customs union. I don't think that debate is finished yet. Um, it is the key issue for Ireland. You know, if we can see, you know, the UK leave the EU, stay close to a customs union um, keep some of the single market rules, you know, that's going to make it very different in terms of the additional risks and costs for Irish business. They, they're the real core issues and that, that that hasn't changed and we don't think that debate is done yet. Cliff? I don't think the debate is done yet either um, but, but it could go, it could end up in a bad way as well as a good way. Uh, there's no doubt that, the, you know, the extent of chaos in the Conservative Party 
the impossibility of reaching a compromise that's going to keep both sides of the of the party happy means that you know a hard a, a no deal Brexit, a so-called no deal Brexit, where Britain crashes out without any agreement with the EU, must must still be seen as a real possibility, um, and that obviously you know brings big risks for for Irish business, uh, and I and I guess compresses a lot of the risks of Brexit into a shorter time frame, mm-hmm. uh, into a shorter period after Britain leaves. There is you know, but 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 of course there are so many possible scenarios now. You know, talk of a general election in the UK, mm. talk of a leadership challenge. For for Theresa May. Um, there's just so many possibilities now that, you know, for businesses, for trading businesses, trying to plan this one for people mm. trading with the UK or moving goods through the UK, this is this is this is really difficult. You have so many possible scenarios to uh, to try and um, to try and tangle with. Yeah, sure. Uh, just finally on this point, Chris, I mean, you, you spent a lot of time in London, I know. Um, what's the mood on the ground uh, like there? Is there an appetite for another election? No, um, from, from no side, actually. Um, because the Conservatives are completely split, as, as Cliff was just saying, and the only strategy that they have, that Theresa May has, is to keep kicking this down the road. I think that that the only way that she, if she has a strategy, which sometimes I doubt, it's, it's to actually get them out, because it's only just over a year away now, which they have to leave, and then it all gets sorted out after they've left. Um, I think that's an amazingly high-risk strategy, but the reason why she's doing it in that way is that what if if a decision is made now, if the can is picked up rather than kicked, the Conservative Party will split. Um, I don't see how it can survive a decision over Brexit being made, this side of it actually happening. So I think there's a very high-risk strategy going on, um, which um, has the capacity to produce very unexpected outcomes. Cliff? Yeah, I, mean, I think I think that makes perfect sense in, in that the only way Theresa May can survive and the only way I think the rest of the party will let her survive is this kind of pact that somehow she will engineer an exit from the EU and it'll be worked out afterwards now. The difficulty for Britain now is that it's it's become increasingly clear over the last week or so that the EU, I think, are, are spotting this and, and they're trying to uh, call Britain's bluff and say, look, we need to know uh, where you stand. We need to know, you know, very quickly what your priorities are for the future relationship. We need very clear commitments for the transition phase and, and, and the rules that you're going to sign up to when that comes into play immediately after Britain leaves. A lot of those are problematic as well for Theresa May. And we need the December agreement written into a formal legal text in, in, mm. in what's called the withdrawal agreement. And the EU holds a lot of cards here, The EU they? holds the cards. And if, the, if you know, if they, if, they push those, if they push those arguments, uh, the fudge that Chris is talking about, it isn't going to be possible anymore from Theresa May, and goodness knows what's going to happen over the next couple of months. So I think we're entering the, you know, if we thought phase one was rocky, I think we ain't seen nothing yet. The next few months could be, you know, have the potential to be, uh, to, to 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 be really interesting. All right, we'll leave it there for now and we'll wait and see what happens there. We're going to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about the latest economic forecasts for Ireland and also the government's national infrastructure plan. Back in a few moments. Only 29% of us know how much we need to live on in retirement. Irish Life is changing that with Empower, a new approach to company pensions that helps change the way your employees think about their future. For more, go to irishlifeempower.ie or talk to your pension consultant. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, June 2015. 
Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Uh, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free on iTunes, and it's also available on our website, irishtimes.com forward slash podcast. Now, for this part of the programme, we'll be teasing out the latest economic forecast for Ireland and the merits of the government's expected €115 billion Euro national investment plan. Now, Fergal, uh, today we had some figures from the European Commission uh, providing forecasts for economic growth in Ireland in 2017. And it would seem to uh, paraphrase or misquote perhaps uh, Bertie Ahern, our former Taoiseach, that the boom just keeps getting boomier. Because what the European Commission is suggesting is that GDP grew by 7.3% in 2017, which I think will be ahead of most people's expectations. Uh, and the growth is expected to moderate to a very healthy 4.4% in 2018 and 3.1% in 2019. What do you make of these figures? Um, I think they're probably pretty close to the money. Uh, I think the staff in the European Commission, in terms of their 7 plus percent for 2017, are very much reflecting the momentum we had over the first three quarters of the year. So if you, if you average the growth of the first three quarters of the year, it was north to 7%. And I think their assessment now, probably based on some of the latest evidence, even looking at exchequer returns, the, one of the pieces of the jigsaw from Q4 of last year that we just saw last week, that momentum was fully there. So I think what they're saying is the economy didn't slow down anyway in Q4 and 7.5 there thereabouts looks fairly reasonable. Looking at the, the exchequer returns, which, as I said, is probably um, one of the most timely pieces of data we have, um, the key indicator is on VAT and income tax. We're growing in that kind of 6% range. They were very strong numbers. Um, so as we've probably been hearing from from some of the the physical retailers that, okay, it was good, but not great. Um, but I think this piece that's really coming through in the economy is the online consumer spending. Um, mm. Well, interesting. I had a story about Eason's during the week and their six-week Christmas trading period, their e-commerce sales, their online sales were up 31%. Um, but mm. footfall was down through the shopping centres and their bricks and mortar sales were, yeah. were barely ahead, yeah. which is a very interesting signal. And I suppose it's, it's that's the way, that's going to be the trend for some time it, to come, I would imagine. It is the trend. We've seen about six billion extra go on e-commerce transactions over a period of two years. So as a proportion of consumer mm. spending, you know, we're now going a fifth towards a quarter in, in, in terms of the volume of consumer spending. So it's a big chunk of what's happening. What you're seeing there in terms of those VAT, for it, that, that the growth in the VAT, which is the strongest we've seen since the start of the recovery, um, it's probably pretty much in line with what's happening to household incomes. House, household incomes have been growing by about 5.5%. So it is no surprise to see that consumers are back out spending uh, in the shops, online, hospitality, travel, Irish consumer is very confident yeah. at the moment. Chris Johns, do you believe these figures? Uh, is, or is this more leprechaun economics, as Paul Krugman uh, called it, uh, famously in 2016 when we had that, what, whatever it was, 26, 27% rise in GDP? I think we need to leave that term behind now. Um, yeah, the, it, it, it can still be difficult to disentangle the effect of multinationals, but a lot of that stuff um, was one-off. It um, wasn't all one-off. but, but um, So I think these figures are robust and um, it's consistent with everything else that we know about the economy. Look, the, the, the Irish economy is a quintessential small open economy and the world economy is booming. And um, one area that's, that's, I think, astonished all forecasters has been the growth of Europe over the last um, year. It started in 2016, actually. Um, and Europe, by European standards, is also booming. So that's even helping in the UK. One of the reasons why they didn't have a post-referendum recession is that world economic boom. Um, And similarly, we're benefiting from it as well. 
Um, so well, disproportionately so, uh, Chris, because I think the figures for the EU and the euro area, uh, the average growth was 2.2%. And, you know, we're, we're kind of three times that level, uh, twice that level, if you just sort of look at domestic activity. We've always been a leveraged play on global growth um, and ha- have been for a long time. And, and that, that's the nature of, of an economy that's so open and so reliant on trade. And Chris, some people might say there's kind of a ring of familiarity to some of these growth figures to what we saw in the Celtic Tiger era um, and are be- beginning to become concerned about overheating. And Pascal Donoghue and Leo Varadkar have both sort of indicated that they will hold off on tax cuts or you know big investment spend if they feel that the economy is overheating. Yeah, well, as you know, Pascal and I have had a sort of a remote discussion about this and um I think quite strong, feel quite strongly that the economy isn't overheating. Um, there are no signs of incipient inflation, and and therefore there's nothing to worry about. I think it's a new era. Um, I know he, he, the finance minister is responsible for Ireland, but Ireland is just one part of the euro area. So you have to ask yourself, what does overheating look like for an economy that's just part of a much bigger um, currency union now? The last time we had to worry about overheating... Um, you know, it was a different ball game um, because of house prices. Presumably, the regulator now, via the central bank, now has his foot on the neck of the banks, so they're not going to go and do what they did last time. So, where would overheating occur? Uh, unemployment still, we're not still, we're not full employment yet. I still think there's slack in the labour market that could be taken up by a rapidly growing economy. Um, and frankly, I don't think a bit of, again, it's a bit like my comments earlier on about the US, a bit of wage inflation wouldn't go amiss. Um, it, it, it doesn't necessarily lead to um, actual headline inflation if it's matched by productivity growth, which I think in the case of Ireland it will be. Cliff, I think we are beginning to see that wage inflation now, aren't we? We're seeing an unwinding, for example, of the Lansdowne Road Agreement for public servants. And we're seeing a lot of private sector uh, employers beginning to offer increases maybe of the order of 2 3%. Yeah, yeah, and when you add that to, I suppose, some largesse in the budget, as Fergus said, people's people's incomes are increasing and, and there are more people at work, a lot more people at work than there were a year ago. So all, the, all those factors are, are, are pushing up household incomes. What about you know, house, I mean, house prices continue to go up by, what, 8 9 10%? Yeah, I mean... Depending on what month of the year it is. There, there are problem areas in the economy. You know, as Chris said, we're not we're not looking at a classic overheating picture. We're we're, we're looking at something different. We're looking at, a, I guess you could say, an, an infrastructure squeeze in a lot of areas. So, shortage of housing supply is pushing prices up in the housing sector, causing a real you know a real economic problem, and you know potentially a block to growth to some extent in terms of attracting more inward investment here because uh, investors you know want places to live for their for their management and staff when, when they come here, and also there. You know, all the infrastructure problems that we know about around the big cities and, and the government going to produce their, their plan next year. Yes, it leads on them. nicely to the national infrastructure yeah. plan. When are we going to get the detail of that and what's it going to involve? Well, uh, it's, it's, it's a massive programme over the next uh, 10 years or so. Uh, we haven't uh, been told yet when it's going to be published. The Cabinet discussed it last Monday. Uh, there's talk that it could be published in the next in the next week or so. A uh, bit of finalisation possibly to be done, a bit of political considerations to be to be factored in. So we, we, we don't know exactly. How much money when. are we talking about? Well, uh, Pascal Donoghue said over 100 billion. I think we've reported 115. Um, the bulk of that will be government money over the next 10 years. There'll also be some private sector money in there and there'll be some money from state agencies like uh, the ESB and 
groups uh, groups like that who are investing in infrastructure. So mm. we are, we're talking about a really big program. And I guess that the context is we're coming from a period during the crash when the easy thing to do to try and get the national finances back in order was to cut investment spending. Mm. And that was done. And to, to some extent, we're paying the price of that now in terms of houses and roads and sure. all the things that are that are, that are short. So the, the government now is going to... Now, again, there might be a, a familiar to ring to this for a lot of people because people say, oh, well, hold on, did we not have a national spatial plan? Whatever happened to that? And what about the national development plan that we had all those years ago? Yeah, yeah, we seem a, to have all these national plans. We never seem to get anywhere with them. Yeah, well, we've had a few plans. I suppose we had a number of plans that were funded by the Europe, by the EU and largely by EU money over a period of years, uh, which did deliver huge improvements in terms of road infrastructure in particular, rail infrastructure, education infrastructure, uh, you know, big investments which were really important to the development of the Irish economy. We then had the, the famous National Spatial Strategy, which I think was 2002, which did... That was a fiasco. Collapse into, collapse into nothing. Uh, the decentralisation programme was more, more or less torn up for political reasons and... We, we know the result that all the all the development has been concentrated around Dublin. So what the government, we believe, are going to do is they're going to publish the new investment programme in tandem with the new national spatial programme. Now, they published a draft of the spatial programme a few months ago. Groups like IBEC have been inputting into that. So the idea is that the two will go together. So we're looking at an investment plan in the context of where in the country the government wants to develop. And, and the big theme is going to be First of all, trying to make Dublin fit for purpose to deal with mm. some of the clogging congestion we have. And secondly, to move a lot of activity or a lot more activity down to, to other cities Spread like Cork, Limerick, Galway or Waterford. And the debate is going to be, I think, come from rural areas who are going to say, hold on, yeah. this is an urban based development programme, what about rural Ireland? Largely Dublin-centric, I think, is the, is the claim in well, some, well, some I, quarters. I, th- I think there's going to be a lot of uh, development and money for, for, for cities like Cork and Limerick, cause I think, and Galway, Waterford, uh, possibly Sligo, because I think a big focus of this programme is going to be moving development out of out of Dublin and into uh, into, into, in, into yeah. the big regional cities. I think the debate is going to be what about rural Ireland? Uh, yeah. That's where the that's where the crux is going well, to be. Well, what about rural Ireland, uh, Fergal? Where, where does IBEC um, stand on this? I know we don't have the full detail of the plan, but we've you know we've had a, a sense of where it might be going. I think here on you know if you look back to last year's budget, we probably said it was a bit of a non-event for the economy, right? Um, I think this plan is probably the most significant economic policy announcement government are going to make for some time. Probably, Does it go far pr- enough? Probably for a number of years. Uh, let's see. Uh, won't prejudge us at this stage. Um, if you look at what's holding back the economy at the moment, I think we, have, we have two major challenges. One is the capacity constraints that are coming through. We're seeing it in the infrastructure. Uh, Chris says there's a little bit of slack left in the labour market. There may be, but we are facing not just skill shortage challenges, but actually labour shortage. We really got to stretch the capacity of the economy here. And we do have this challenge, as Cliff says, uh, too much reliance on our Dublin economy. It's not good for Dublin. It's not good for the country. Right now, we've got 50% of economic activity happening inside the M50. That's excessive. And it's we're way more reliant as a country on Dublin than, say, the UK is on London. Mm. So, I think the population so of Dublin is probably, what, 30, 32%, something like that of, of, the, of, the, of the overall. So and even the last census, we're seeing this population march from, from west to east. Mm. So, so we need to redress that. We need to scale up the infrastructure and we need a better balance. I think the, the key to the better balance is going to be making some tough calls, right? We're going to have to prioritise this block of investment whether you know it's going to be fully sufficient or not, but whatever it is, we've got to prioritise. So do you support the move to focus the investment on urban areas? And the government seems to be drawing a line from Dublin to Galway, and everything below that is, is essentially where, where most of the activity is going to go. 
So we're with them in about half of that strategy. <laughs> it makes sense to prioritize to see those urban centers as developing out the city regions. Um, we see a great opportunity in terms of making an Atlantic economic cor- corridor that can be a really effective Cork, Limerick, Galway, that type of thing. Waterford, go right, let's go right up the West Coast because we've got to do this on an all-island basis as well. Um, but you've got to make calls in terms of where we're going to prioritise. So what's the bit you don't message. necessarily agree with? You touched on it yourself. You know, this idea of having a city desert north of, of, of Galway to Dublin, um, that's not going to be sustainable for, for socioeconomic reasons. I don't think we can develop the country in that way. We're going to have to identify in the Midlands, in the Northwest, uh, urban centres of, of a reasonable scale. We've got to make Dublin efficient in terms of a world-class city with the kind of infrastructure that capital cities Does that mean need. up instead of out in, in terms of housing? It Residential d- development? definitely means higher. Uh, you're going to see a lot of focus in this plan on brownfield development, on greater density. We're going to have to uh, address the height issue. We're going to have to get a better planning system. You know, the, the spatial distribution of growth is important, but we're going to need a better planning system coming out of this, better coordination of local government. And you know, if we've got a, a strategy at a national level that we're going to really develop our cities with a good municipal, municipal planning approach, then that's got to involve greater density. But we need that counterbalance, and you can really see those major urban centres on the West Coast. Get, let's get them to scale. You know, Cork needs to be aiming for half a million people. You know, the other cities need to be talking about a quarter of a million people. Um, one, of the, one of the risks we see right across the plan is that overall government's probably still being too cautious. They're talking about a population growth over the next 25 years of a million people. That's yeah. a lot now. It's a, it's, a, it's a lot when you when you count them up, right? Um, when you look at the potential for the economy, we think it could actually be closer to two million people. And but we, sorry, where are they are, going to come from? Where yeah. are these two million going to come from? For so, if you look at if you, if, you, if you look at the trajectory in terms of demographic growth rates, uh, inward migration, if we create, deliver the housing, uh, create the jobs, you know, we th- the all island population we think could be heading towards ten million people from a current population of about seven million people. So two more for the republic, one more in Northern Ireland. That's really driving you to an all island economy of scale. Um, but if we set the bar too low... So you think Northern okay. Ireland in a Brexit context can add a million people? Well, look at the population density that we have on this island. It's really, really low. You know, you go back to where we were 200 years ago, the population on this island was half of that mm. of the population. Of course, the next island, now, now we're one-tenth. Now we're one-tenth. Yeah. So the upside here is very, very substantial. Yeah. Um, but it could. this will be self-reinforcing if we're too conservative. If we're not planning, at least have the scenarios that okay. we might reach 2 million people. If we only plan for a million, chances are we won't even reach a million. Chris, what's your view on all of this? Is the plan ambitious enough and do you think it can be delivered upon? Um, two very big questions. I think it's right to be ambitious. Um, but it's pointless being, you know, um, over-ambitious because we've seen these sorts of plans come and go in the past. But I think everybody's agreed now uh, across the political spectrum. Everybody speaking today would agree that you know we've got infrastructure bottlenecks everywhere um dublin is full there's no no doubt about that at all um from my estimation of you know because i travel between dublin and london a lot casual observation tells me that uh, the city is is surpassing um celtic tiger traffic levels for example I, I i don't think the planning system is fit for purpose to be honest um but that's partly cultural as well, as well as being regulatory. Here in London, people are more than content to live in high-rise luxury apartments. Culturally, we still don't want to do that. Um, it's getting better, but we, we definitely have to build up. 
Um, we have to do something about the roads. Um, and, of course, the education system is, is, is critical in all of this as well. Um, the needs are many, and so prioritizing is going to be key because we haven't got that much money. Um, and how they prioritize is going to be the most interesting question, I think. Yeah. And, Chris, if there was one project that you'd like to see delivered over the time frame, what would it be? <laughs> That's the hardest one of all. I think I think Dublin's – I mean, I know this is Dublin-centric, but, you know, that's where I spend most of my time. Um, the, the entire tra- public transport infrastructure in Dublin is, is, is creaking. Uh, Travelling on the dart at peak times is a nightmare. Travelling by car at peak times is a nightmare. Um, I would like to see um, more money devoted to public transport and the infrastructure around it. Um, because, I th- the, the, you know, it can't, the, the car can't be the future. Um, public transport must be. So um, my, my hobby horse over many years has been pub- public transport, um, particularly so for Dublin. Cliff, same question for you. Yeah, Fergal's going to give out to me here for not being ambitious enough, but there's uh, uh, Dublin Bus have put forward a, a plan for a big investment in bus corridors, uh, really making the whole bus system around uh, Dublin work, proper information for for passengers, uh, more routes. I see you shaking your head. You're 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 probably a, good luck a, with that. A bus commuter yourself, but you know every. I came in for, uh, by bus from Terenure the other morning, and the bus comes from the mountains. There must be like twenty yeah. stops before it gets to Terenure. Well, it is, was absolutely yeah, rammed. This is this is making my point. We're we're just not doing it properly. So you know, I know there's all these ambitious plans for a metro to the airport and extensions to the Dart and all that, but. A billion euro will get you a proper bus system in in, in Dublin. Yeah, you know, let's just let's I do it. I believe when I see it. Okay, Fergus, <laughs> same question for you. Well, the, the two guys have spoken about Dublin enough, so I'm going to move it outside. Let's move the, it to the country. Um, I think the most important thing is we actually build out a null island infrastructure so to be fit for purpose for a population of 10 million people. Let's be ambitious. You said we, you know, national development plans didn't deliver much in the past. We delivered good motorways between our regional cities and the capital. Let's connect the regional cities to each other. Let's connect the island on an all-island basis. Whether uh, Chris probably right, we won't be driving cars. That doesn't mean we won't be using the road network for transport in driverless cars or other driverless vehicles. I think the road network is still going to underpin on this island the type of transport system that we're going to need to get around the island with much better public transport uh, in and around our cities. Okay, well, let's see how it plays out. We'll get the details of that plan, no doubt, in the coming weeks. Okay, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Chris Johns, Cliff Taylor and Fergal O'Brien. Jennifer Ryan produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget that you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed every day on Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.